0: It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how and why did food become so gendered? You know, men eat red meats and women eat salads. When did those associations begin? Plus, according to new evolutionary findings, animals might have begun to vocalize to each other even before they had ears. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. How often do you see men in yogurt commercials? Hardly ever, unless it's one of those yogurts in black packaging advertising it's high protein and being hawked by an ex-football player. And women are equally missing from ads for beef jerky, chili, and whiskey. Women drink white wine, eat salads, lean white meats, and lots of ice cream and chocolate. Men eat red meat, drink beer and bourbon and, I don't know, the weirdest possible flavors of Doritos. The associations that many of us hold, even without really thinking about it, are so strong that a 2014 study in the journal Science Psychology showed that women are more likely to choose healthy, nutritious foods, while men gravitate towards less healthy options, when the options were presented with gendered cues. And even more so, when the participants in that study were given food with gender-neutral packaging, they reported it not tasting as good as the gendered ones. How did we get to this point? How did gender pervade our food options so deeply? Like so many other things, you can thank advertising, racism, and the 19th century. Yale historian Paul Friedman digs into this question in his book American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. Writing this week in The Conversation, Friedman points out that in America, before the Civil War, the whole family typically ate the same foods together. And I will add that the largely agrarian society in America at the time contributed to this dynamic. As Friedman points out, none of the best-selling household manuals or cookbooks at the time indicated that husbands would have different tastes that the wives should be catering to, as they would in the decades to come. The shift, or at least the main one that Friedman relays, came amidst various shifting social norms in the latter half of the 19th century, including more women joining the workforce. This precipitated the rise of women's restaurants, places where women could go to have a midday meal and not be disturbed by rowdy, drunken men. But, at least in the beginning, the menus in men's restaurants and women's restaurants were exactly the same. It was only as more and more women's restaurants began to proliferate and chains emerged that companies began coming up with foods they decided were more appropriate for women. Things like fish, cottage cheese, and desserts especially desserts. Seen as light and airy and a vice that weak women couldn't resist, desserts outnumbered entrees on many menus at the time, according to Friedman. And this was another crucial shift in the 19th century. As Samira Kawash points out in her book Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure, sweet indulgences came to be associated with women and children as the cost of sugar went down. Back in the 17th and 18th centuries, Kawash says, during the reign of sugar plantations, having access to sugar was seen as a sign of immense wealth and power. When hosting events, the wealthy would display extravagant sugar spun centerpieces. Quoting Kawash, as production became more mechanized in the 19th century, the price of sugar fell. And by the second half of the 19th century, sugar was both cheap and widely available. As a result, historian Wendy Wolson suggests sugar became linked with femininity. Its economic devaluation coincided with its cultural demotion. Sweets were banished to the margins of the table, just as women and children were banished to the drawing rooms and nurseries. It's a common belief that women and children are the ones who crave candy. The masculinity of a man who likes candy too much is often seen as somewhat suspect. This turns out to not be the whole story. Historically, men have also eaten their share and have even, at some points during the last century, been the primary market for it. But perhaps food historians have paid so little attention to candy because this cultural connection between sweet, trivial people, i.e., women and children, and sweet, trivial candy. End quote. And we also can't separate this from racism and colonialism. Apart from the enslaved people working on the sugar plantations, of course, white people also needed to prove that they were naturally and scientifically superior to everyone else. That was among the driving factors of the creation of strict gender boundaries around the 19th century. Quoting Kravitz Marshall in An Injustice magazine... As Melissa N. Stein discusses in Measuring Manhood, Race and the Science of Masculinity, race became the purview of 19th and early 20th century American science. White people used their physical gender standards and proposed sex differences to prove their superiority to Africans via scientific racism of the mid-1800s. Many know of the previous measurements of skulls for determining racial purity, but people also used similar evaluations to affirm their gender. Numerous middle-class white women used phrenology, the assessment of bumps on the skull, to reassure themselves of their womanhood and distinguish themselves from other races and lower economic classes. By promoting women's health as good for the race, Carla Biddle writes in Woman, Know Thyself, phrenology encouraged good breeding and recommended that women select partners with heredity in mind. Phrenologists in the United States argued that the procedure demonstrated that Europeans were morally and intellectually superior to other races— The 19th century saw white scientists declaring that only white people could achieve binary sex differentiation. By contrast, people of color allegedly hadn't evolved enough to differentiate between male and female. Essentially, they were unsexed, and this inability to reach this full sexual dichotomy was yet another marker of racial inferiority." End quote. So therefore, the more white people conformed to whatever high society and advertisements told them they were supposed to do as a man or as a woman, the safer they could feel at the top of the evolutionary pyramid, the more they could distinguish themselves from all other races and ethnicities. And this was certainly a class issue even within white society, with working class women being seen as much more masculine than their wealthy counterparts. I mean, after all, eating a hearty stew made with what your family could afford on your modest budget was just so much more manly than a clear, dainty soup. And so we have the explosion of sweet and dainty foods marketed towards women that really takes off as we enter the 20th century, and especially when Jell-O corners the market on colorful, jiggly salads. As Friedman points out, quote, at the same time, self-appointed men's advocates complained that women were inordinately fond of the very types of decorative foods being marketed to them, end quote. But fortunately, those cookbooks I mentioned were waiting in the wings to help women know what to cook for their husbands. As early as 1872, books with titles and subtitles like How to Keep a Husband and The Way to a Man's Heart instructed women on feeding their husbands foods that they themselves most likely did not desire at all. And as Friedman crucially points out, while all these guidebooks and advertisements were telling women they needed to devote themselves to making the perfect meals for their husbands, a lot of men were saying that they wanted a more carefree wife who wasn't exhausted from cooking all day. Enter the picture-perfect ideal of the 1950s housewife, who greets her husband with a fresh-from-the-oven roast while dressed in heels, a full face of makeup, and not a single hair out of place. And advertisements helped with that, too. As kitchen appliances became less laborious, they showed housewives could make a full meal without breaking a sweat. But then we get into the 1970s. The microwave makes convenience cooking even easier and more popular, right as even more women are entering the workforce, second-wave feminism is blossoming, and gender-segregated dining venues are becoming less popular. But, quoting Friedman, as food historians Laura Shapiro and Harvey Levenstein have noted, despite these social changes, the depiction of male and female tastes in advertising has remained surprisingly consistent, even as some new ingredients and foods have entered the mix. Kale, quinoa, and other healthy food fads are gendered as female. Barbecue, bourbon, and adventurous foods, on the other hand, are the domain of men. End quote. Probably because I live in New York City and mostly hang around LGBTQ plus folks, I hadn't realized how pervasive this gendering still is until I was at a rehearsal dinner for a Midwestern cousin's wedding last year. I hadn't had too much to eat that day, so after finishing my own plate, I was gobbling down what was left of my aunt's kale salad. And as I did so, my uncle looked at me and asked why I was doing that, what my motivation was for eating all that kale. Was I worried about my cholesterol or something? Even though it wasn't my salad, the fact that I would happily be eating a plate of kale was completely confounding to him, even though he hadn't been confused at all why several of the women at the table had ordered it. The pernicious way generations of gendering food in society, on menus, and advertising has snuck into our consciousness has real-world consequences, like men being more likely to die of heart disease, in part due to less healthy diets, and women feeling shamed for eating anything too masculine, or assuming something is healthy because it's marketed in a feminine way, even though it might just in fact be loaded down with sugar. You know, it's absolutely wild how deep, often just made up associations can penetrate and for how long they can keep up, morphing to serve the unique paranoias of each generation. Given what we're seeing right now with trans people being used as the latest scapegoat of the culture wars, I'm sure the gender binary of food with things like gunmetal black protein packed yogurt for men will only pick up in the coming years. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be a common choice or that a majority of people will actively care, but I think the products will absolutely be there for that vocal minority who has to prove their gender even through their breakfast choices. Film plan, streams, and standard definition programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See dot for details. A number of sea creatures and reptiles might be quite a bit more chatty than we previously thought. A team of researchers led by Gabriel Yorgovich Cohen at the University of Zurich have found that 53 sea creatures previously thought to be silent actually vocalize in ways that suggest previous findings on evolution actually date back even further. Among the more prominent literature on the topic prior to this new study was a study from the University of Arizona, which compiled a family tree of all known acoustic animals at the time. Acoustic meaning animals that make sounds with their mouths powered by their lungs. That tree led the evolutionary ecologists leading the study to determine that acoustic communication invertebrates evolved multiple different times between 100 million and 200 million years ago. But this new study, published yesterday in the journal Nature Communications, suggests that all vertebrates who breathe through their noses and use acoustic communication evolved from a single common ancestor over 400 million years ago. That would mean some animals were vocalizing before they even had ears to hear the sounds. Or as W. Tecumseh Fitch, a bioacoustician at the University of Vienna who was not involved in the study, put it to Science.org, quote, It suggests our ears evolved to hear these vocalizations, end quote. So basically, where Jorgwich Cohen, who led the new study, filled in the gaps of the existing literature was by setting out to investigate previously overlooked animals. He told BBC News that some of these animals were overlooked because their sounds are very quiet or very infrequent, like once every two days, and land animals also tend to be studied more than ones that live underwater. Yorgvich Cohen and his team looked at 50 different species of turtles, as well as the lungfish, the tuatara, and the Sicilian. Using microphones to record vocalizations from the 53 different species, the researchers found all manner of different sounds. And with the aid of a video camera, they were able to study the movements of the animals to see how the different sounds were associated with behaviors. For example, Yorgvich Cohen told BBC News, quote, Sea turtles will sing from within their egg to synchronize hatching. If they call from inside, they all come out together and hopefully avoid being eaten. End quote. Turtles also make mating sounds, and tuatara's make sounds to guard their territory. Documenting these observations across the 53 species, the team was then able to create a more comprehensive evolutionary tree of over 1,800 species. Quoting BBC News. Using a technique called phylogenetic analysis, Yorgovich Cohen traced back the relationship between noise making animals. The technique works by comparing behaviors of a species and mapping them like a family tree. If, for example, a human and chimpanzee share behavior like making noise, it suggests that the ancestor in common also produced sound. He concluded that all acoustic communication in vertebrates descended from a single ancestor 400 million years ago, which was the Devonian period when most species lived underwater. End quote. Biologist Catherine Hobader, who was not involved in the study, told BBC News that the recordings from the team are invaluable because we still have relatively so few recordings of acoustic communication from many species, and that comparing common features of animals with older lineages than humans and apes is vital since that only gets us back a few million years, not hundreds of millions. Behavior ecologist Elizabeth Derryberry shared in The Excitement, telling Science.org that the study, which she was not involved in, suggests that acoustic communication evolved in concert with the lungs. Evolutionary biologist Anthony Russell was similarly grateful for how these findings could contribute to tracing the evolution of many species, including humans, but also cautioned that some assumptions are being made here about animals listening and responding to the recorded vocalizations, calling the assumptions very bold at best, and it's possible no other creatures are paying any attention to the vocalizations." But Yorgovich Cohen told Science.org that he is already working on investigating that question. Quote, He's presently documenting how turtles and other quieter species use these sounds. He also wants to compare the sounds of land vertebrate and lungfish to those of other fish to see whether the acoustic evolutionary tree extends even further back in time. Do we share the ability of sound production with some groups of fish? He asks. And if yes, the origins of acoustic communication must be much older than what we hypothesize. End quote. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.